brocode.life podcast and welcome to episode six, another why series with a friend of mine, Friedemann. My goodness, do I love what I do. Um, Friedemann is a, is, a, is a mutual friend of, of ours and a new friend of mine who, who I've recently met. And all those close to me when, when doing this, um, this sort of project said, you've got to interview Friedemann because he's had a fascinating life and what a fascinating life it turns out to be. I'm not going to ruin it, but, but a high-level summary um, from a very early age, followed his passion of motorbikes and, moto, moto, and MotoGP racing as well as journalism photography and has just finished up the 36-year career uh, traveling around the world um, following his love and his passion. And it's his whole story and how he's kind of stayed true to that. Uh, uh, it's, you know, with anyone like Friedemann, it's, it's always bizarre that, how they don't think they've led exceptional lives. I mean, he, he's, he's, he knows the likes of Valentino Rossi personally well and has seen people like that and associated with people of that stature um, throughout his career and has traveled to over 85 countries. I think he speaks multiple languages as well. So from the outside looking in, it's a, it's a really, really awesome life. There's some great stuff in there about about his his approach and his strategy and how he's framed his life as well as um, the importance of fear and, and doing things that, that are daunting and doing things that take us out of our comfort zone. But as, as he eloquently sort of put so well, we only have one life, so we might as well um, do it and do what we love. So uh, I'm going to leave it at that. It's a long one. It's a two-hour one today, so maybe through a couple of commutes. But strap in, enjoy, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the sixth edition of the Broco.life podcast, uh, another Y series today. And with me, I have Freeman Kern. Kern, how do you say that? Very good. Kern? Kern? Kern. Kern. Uh, Freeman, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, very well done. So for those who haven't heard of the Y series, please go back and listen to all my other podcasts. Uh, the whole concept of, of these series are interviewing and having conversations with people who've, I believe, lived exceptional lives. And lives um, away from the cubicle, away from the rat race, but have just chosen a different path. So what is fascinating to me chatting on or before camera car with Friedemann is, is, and with all the people that I interview and I've got lined up to interview in this part is, you don't see your life as exceptional. Um, you don't see what you've done and the path you've chosen as exceptional. And, and that, that always rings so true because people who've chosen to live a certain way just, just have. But the, the, the inspiration that it brings others and the different perspective on life it brings others, I think, is so important, hence us doing this series. So I just wanted to start off there. Um, so Freedom, and for those who don't know you, we're going to go back in history. I, I think this is going to be a long podcast. Um, I, I need to finish talking, but, but uh, Freedom and I are sort of recent friends. But since I've started this project, everyone who knows Freedom and Well is saying, look, you've got to interview this guy. You've got to interview this guy. So I'm really excited <laughs> as to see where today I goes. I hope I can contribute <laughs> something. Okay. Yeah. Hashtag no pressure, right? Um, I'm super excited where today goes. But just for those so who don't I. know you, just a quick intro and then we'll, we'll, we'll dive right back to the beginning. So, so who are you and what's your high-level story? <laughs> okay, I, I probably don't have a high-level story, and it's certainly not a glamorous story. Yeah. It is probably a story that is a little bit different to many other stories. But, you know, once you work in a certain environment, you are surrounded by people that do similar things than you do. So you stop looking at, at this as, uh, as being exceptional. 
Let's say I feel privileged because I had always the chance to work with people, which I like. Yeah. And for most part, I had a chance to work with interesting people, which comes with the job as being a journalist. So it happened. I went through the normal school education and when it came to study, and now referring back to Germany, that was Germany 1977 when I finished school and I was supposed to go in, to, to going to university. And for some reason, back then when uh, I had to make my choice at university, I, don't, I didn't see all the choices that, that were available in my, in my, you know, in my mindset. I just saw, ooh, you go now to school for another five years, you probably become uh, a solicitor or you be a school teacher or, or something like that. So I, which I kind of regret, I did not see other exciting opportunities. Okay. So I did not see the exciting opportunity of becoming a marine biologist and discovering the seven seas or becoming a, an engineer that would, you know, develop spacecraft or things like that. I, I didn't think along that line. I simply thought along that line, I actually had enough of school and I want to do something that widens my horizon yeah. immediately. And this is how I became a journalist. Now, back then, uh, the, uh, the education to become a journalist so you can work for newspapers was, in fact, very, very simple. It was called a voluntary art, which means a voluntary apprenticeship. Yeah. It is voluntary in a sense that you can't give marks to a journalist. You can have a personal opinion if it's a well-written article or a not-so-well-written article, but you can't say you are an A-plus journalist or a B-minus journalist. You can probably say you are hopeless in your job, but that's about it. <laughs> there is no scale, right? It's exactly. Of, it's like art, I guess. In a... So nobody told me I was hopeless. <laughs> I, I did my two years, and after these two years, I was invited to join... Uh, one of I, I did this in a, in a, at, a, at a regional newspaper, and one of the not nationwide but statewide newspapers then invited me to have my first fully paid job as an editor. Yeah, and I, I, sorry, I, I need to stop. You. I just want to pull yeah, you sure. back there just for people listening. So the reason I got Friedman on the show is journalist, MotoGP, traveled around the world for thirty years. From mm. what I understand, interviewing the latest, the, the best of the best, right? Yeah. So. The, the concept of the story and, and hence the helmet of Valentino Rossi yeah. up front there is yeah. how Friedman got there. So I just wanted to add some context for those listening as to where your life took you, which is everywhere, um, but how you got there. So just, just so those listening can understand. Sure. Go, sorry. But being a journalist is part of it. That's yep. why I mentioned that. Yeah. So I became a sports journalist. So, so when you were at school, let's pull back even yeah. earlier. I mean, from a, from a uh, soccer's huge or football's huge... Not all football is football, I guess. It is huge in Germany. Was that your passion? Did you did you lean towards the motor, that sort of the the the, the F one motor GP scene, or what is your passion at an early days, even before you, you sort of looked at journalism? My passion was motorcycles. Always. Always. Wow. And this is again a story that you have to see in the context of time, because back in the back in the seventies, this huge boom of motorcycling started i think i believe all over the world but certainly in europe yeah uh in 1967 the first big four-cylinder honda 750 came burst onto the scene and it took the world by storm people all of a sudden rode motorcycles that was the the thing to do that was an expression of freedom 
that was something that connected you to the world because yeah. that's something that connected you to girls in the disco to wherever <laughs> you wanted because back then remind you we did not have internet we did not have all the other lifestyle choices there were certainly not all that money around to go to shopping malls and spend yeah. and spend and spend and spend it, it simply didn't exist we had a few humble cinemas and That was basically it. So, whereabouts in Germany were you? In Stuttgart, in, in Stuttgart, Stuttgart region, in okay. the south of Germany, which is a, which is very hilly and uh, beautiful terrain to take a motorcycle out, and there was much much less traffic than yeah. than today. However, my motorcycling career met a lot of resistance from my parents' house. I'm sure, because, I'm sure. Yeah, I love because, bikes as well, so I can understand that. Because back then, sadly, uh, many young people got uh, badly injured or lost their lives. Okay. That, that, was, uh, that was the flip side of the coin, which, of course, I, I didn't want to uh, recognize. My parents did. So I was there always sort of, sort of on the sidelines. However, it was my passion. And after becoming a journalist, it did not take long. And I ended up at a motorcycle magazine. So how, so what is your, I mean, let's pull back. When is your Germany? Is it 16 you get your first bike? You can get your first bike back in the day? And what was your first bike? <laughs> <laughs> my first bike was a $50 moped that I bought from some other bloke and as soon as I had it at home and my, and my parents got rid of it so that you have to get rid of that again so that was that was the sad story how, how my motorcycling career I've, started I've got a confession as well my Tell first me. my first bike was a Vespa scooter yeah. and this is way before Vespas were trendy and cool and like the whole hipster thing And I was at uni, this big rugby player, and I used to drive my little Vespa up to campus, and I used to get so much abuse. But it was it was my first, you know, the old hand-geared 200, the, the square box, I think it was a E200 But why something. did you get abused? Because, cause Vespa, because scooters weren't cool in oh, those days. Really they, cool. You know, they weren't trendy yet. Aye, aye, aye. I, I See, like to believe I always... How, how, how times have changed. I, Now I everybody has a scooter. Exactly. Yeah. I, run yeah. a, I always say to my friends, I'm, a, I'm an early adopter and I'm a trendsetter. Um, but that was that, that was my first. You, you know, I mean, I think for anyone who's ridden a bike, and I'm, I, I, I sold many things in South Africa to to come here, and selling my Harley was probably one of the worst things that I ever had to do. But that feeling of opening a bike up for the first time, um, for me as an avid surfer, it's when you're surfing big waves and you get that, your stomach churns. There are few things in the world that can sort of mirror that that excitement, right? That that just that joy that runs through you when you when you do open a bike up. I completely agree. Yeah, and this this goes on on all terrains, off road as much as on road. Yeah. And uh, uh, there is again there is a, a, a different side to it too. If you when you ride a motorcycle, you are exposed to the elements, and this is yeah. Sense, this your is senses exactly absolutely. Yeah. And and uh, again back then when there was less traffic and it was all more enjoyable, that was an, a, a huge factor to to enjoy enjoy that you just. As a young person, you just didn't want to sit in the confines of a of a car yeah. in this metal cage around you. You wanted to smell the air and and feel when it got hot, when it got cold, when a rain shower came. You wanted to duck under a bridge and put your rain gear on. Yeah, it was a little bit the whole thing. It was not so much only just uh, opening the throttle and feeling that that too. I have to say. And and did you race at all, or was it just? A... <laughs> I, I my racing career again was very short. <laughs> <laughs> I went to one race myself. Uh, Uh, in order to do a magazine report. Yeah. And pretty much as soon as I got the hang of it, especially of one corner, I crashed in that corner and broke my wrist. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> that was it. That was my active career. So so I'm not a, as much as I love bikes, I'm not a complete petrol head. And, and I'm still yet to go to a MotoGP, which I cannot wait because I think those guys are next level in terms of nuts. 
But I went to the, when I saw living in South Africa, I went to the, uh, the F1 in Singapore. And, and just, just the speed, the power, the noise and everything about that was probably one of the most exhilarating things I've ever been to. And I can expect MotoGP be the next level, right? Because the guys are just so close to the, to the tarmac. Look, I'm biased. To me, <laughs> to me, MotoGP is even more exciting than Formula One. I'm sure. However, they have one thing in common. And they have one thing in common with big wave surfers or with, with uh, tech experts, with tech nerds, with uh, scientists, with whoever does something on a very, very high level. All that happens on a high level, in my point, in my point of view, is interesting in life. Whether it's, you, you can be a complete, how do you say, uh, uh, non-fan or not interested in person in terms of let's say soccer football yeah come see a high level world cup final or something everybody gets hooked because they do something that is just the ultimate of what you can do in in this field, in field and yeah. this makes it interesting and this goes across the board I, i wouldn't i could not think of any subject in life that wouldn't be hugely interesting as uh, once it reaches a certain level and uh, MotoGPs and Formula One have that in common that they are both the pinnacle of what you can do in motorsports in, in on two fields. wheels and on four wheels but it's but it's you know it's part of my philosophy and for those who listen to my podcast I say that often and and part of the course I'm doing is like every day I wake up and let's it's for you personally to be exceptional like yes. be the best of you and a, a for you personally but also surround yourself with exceptional people And I think that's where you've been blessed in a career where you've just you've been surrounded by the best of the best for 30 years. Look, this is a very, very interesting point because, of course, and this is why I always say it's not as glamorous as people think. Of, of course, there's always a lot of groundwork. I would say 90% of, of the job is just a job where we, and when I say we, of course, that's what I referred to earlier. You have colleagues, you have friends yep. that work in the same field. We work very, very hard. So mm. we work uh, on a Sunday, on a come race day. Everybody else, uh, the mechanics, the riders, of course, the team managers, they go home at three o'clock. We sit in the press room until midnight. So we all work really, really long hours and yeah. not, of, not all of that is glamorous by yep. no means. But there are these moments when you get in touch with people, whether it is because I always, I have to throw that in, I always did both. I was a journalist on the MotoGP and I also was a photographer on the, on the MotoGP. Yeah. I combined the two things. Now, whether you work on the track side or behind the scenes doing portraits or ambient stuff as a photographer, or whether you actually, like we do now, sit down with a rider, an engineer, a representative of one of the big Japanese or, or Italian uh, uh, factories that take part in that, and you talk to these high-profile people, that elevates yourself, if that, if that makes, makes any sense. Yes. So that is a really rewarding and, in a sense, pure experience to talk to these people and to meet them on eye level with questions that are hopefully in my case not all dumb yeah and uh, you get them to think you take in their answers and then to put an article together is a very uh, is a very rewarding thing for that matter because it elevates you so i still want to go back to your past but just on this point i think it's interesting for me so i guess as a journalist and and, and you know as i guess as a as a observer of life you, you'd see these let's take a valentino rossi or you know someone else 
they must be asked the same question every single day by the same, you know, it's just, they, 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 I'm sure they've had the same interview for 20 years. How did you find a way to ask those different questions or those questions that would spark them where they'd get engaged with you? Does that make any sense what I'm... Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> because that must be a huge challenge with, yes. with, with someone at, who's been asked, I'm assuming, every question in the world. This is exactly right. So, and sometimes you can't avoid it because sometimes the subjects, like in Formula One or in yeah. any sports, there are little scandals. There are things that are just happening at the moment that you can't avoid confronting them with, with these things again. But I have done many interviews and I try to do many interviews that are different. And there are two, two keys uh, to it. You can be inventive yeah. in your questioning and you say, you know what, for this uh, uh, weekend, uh, we steer them completely away uh, from it and ask different questions. So, and for instance, Valentino Rossi, I had a fun interview with, with him once where I simply said, okay, let's talk about girls. Who would you prefer? I don't remember which girls I chose, but let's say Sandra Bullock or Raquel Welch. Yeah. And for what reasons? Yeah. Then I went on to say, <laughs> okay, if you had the choice, would you rather climb Mount Everest or would you rather dive down to the deepest yeah. uh, crevices in the ocean? And so, uh, nice, so yeah. like I put an interview together that is completely away from what they hear and what yeah. they deal with in their day-to-day -day life. That is one uh, way of doing it. The other way of doing it is accumulating, which in my case happened over the year, a deeper understanding of what they are involved in than a newspaper journalist would have that comes in for the weekend. So on a personal capacity? Yes. So uh, put it this way. Let's say there is the Formula One Grand Prix in Melbourne uh, and uh, a member of the Australian, let's say, goes to this Grand Prix to ask an, an Australia, Ricardo or somebody, yeah. uh, a few questions. They obviously wouldn't reach the same depth of questioning in their field yeah. that I reach because I have deep, simply uh, over the years uh, acquired a deeper understanding what they do, why they do it, and I can ask questions that go a little bit more under the surface. So, so I, I mean, I resonate with that so much. And I, as you know, I fly around the world speaking at tech yes. conferences and all the, I guess, the, the key executives that I know in my, in my field, like, I never speak to them about technology, ever. Like, I, I, I mean, because, you know, it's there and it's there to make money, but it's, it's the relationships that are always going to be more important. Mm -hmm. And I don't do it from a, from, okay, I'm going to form this relationship for stuff. It's just, mm -hmm. I find that more interesting. You know, the, 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 you know, the why, what make people tick, why, you know, like what their kids, holidays, like something that really fires people up because I think most people, you know, are just there because they need to be there from my game, from a tech conference, but it's the other stuff. It's the really deep, deep stuff. My word. And to give you an example that this has nothing to do with motorsports yeah. and nothing to do with your job or with my job, uh, like probably 90% of the population now, I watched with keen interest uh, uh, Free Solo. This amazing oh, documentary, man, uh, nice. yeah, so of good. Uh, Alex Honnold, yeah. uh, uh, who scaled uh, this uh, this uh, incredible El Capitan uh, uh, face. So, in all the YouTube interviews, television interviews, wherever I saw him, and even in the documentary itself, all the questions of everybody revolves about the same thing: How can you do that? How do you conquer yes. your fear? How do you expose yourself? 
uh, to this sort of danger. I heard it over and over again. If I had to interview him to, tomorrow, yeah. I would do exactly what you just said. I would steer completely away from that subject that he answered over and over and over again and would either either yeah. ask personal questions that help me understand his personality yeah. more than just being at all about, about, a, about his capabilities. Or I would try to ask questions that answer the impossibility of finding grip on a three millimeter ledge yeah. or a crevice that we with an with a naked eye don't don't even don't even detect. When he's with a toothbrush. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah. I would actually say, okay, from being on a rope and falling off the same spot in this yeah. wall half a dozen times what actually made the difference that in your own mind you could do this safely without a rope in the end? And I'm talking about technology here, not yeah. about his mindset, because we've heard all that. So that's, a, that's an example. Mm. And the same actually goes with motorsports and with MotoGP, that as soon as I see one of these riders somewhere in a normal television show, the inevitable uh, question goes to injuries, to uh, your you know, hidden death wishes or whatever else. When in fact, when you work in this environment, you learn that the absolutely contrary is the truth. Yeah. Racing is a science and you can relate to science. Mm. And science means that whatever happens on the track is down, down to every possible detail imaginable to make it predictable. Yeah. These riders know exactly what they do at each given second on the track. <laughs> and to, to tap into that is very, very interesting from any angle, from the angle of the rider's mind, from the angle of the tire manufacturers yeah. and, and people that handle tires, from, from people that work on the electronics of these bikes to make them manageable, because they have 280 horsepower. So to yeah. make them manageable out of tight corners, of course, they have to fine tune the engine response and the acceleration to a point where they don't always simply spin the rear wheel. Yeah. So they need to find traction. And the list goes on. The list is actually quite endless. That's why uh, one technician said to me once, sorry, that probably is off the subject, but I have to say that. One technician once uh, said to me, um, you know what the ideal lap time is? Zero. <laughs> yeah, because, well played, yeah. In, you know, yeah. In, in theory, you can improve and improve and improve and improve. And every, everything, every corner that slows you down is a hindrance. Yeah. So what we are working on is getting faster, faster and faster, find, finding ways to, to conquer these challenges in a better and better and better way. So, I mean, talking about calculated risk and, and, and you know, the two podcasts before, you know, on the Y-series, like Natter, big wave surfers, about 70 feet yeah. waves. But, I but, admire that so much. Well, I mean, each to their own, right? But it's, it's, it's calculated. And, and I mean, the Alex Honnold Doco free solo, which is unbelievable. Uh, it's, yeah, I mean, it's probably one of the best films I've ever seen. I mean, he... He, he, I mean, you know, El Cap, I think he did it in three and a half hours or whatever it was. Yeah. You know, in the beginning, guys took months to do it. Um, but he knew every single move. Yeah. Like he, every foot goes there, hand goes there. He had a, the whole thing visualized and mapped in his head. So it was a completely calculated play. Yeah. I mean, for sure, it's crazy to a man in the street. But for him, you know, he mm -hmm. knew every crevice, every foothold, every single move. So it's super calculated. Just, just, uh, we, we, we are going to go back to your past. But for, for, for guys, my target audience, for, for, struggling and finding your why i watched a, a bit of a climbing documentary thing since uh since free solo and there's 
a lot of people ask me um, what it does to you and the pain you go through when you go get divorced. And there is a, um, a documentary on Netflix called The Dawn Wall. And there's a, oh, what's the guy? Someone called, well, he was one of the guys in Free Solo who helped, who helped um, Alex with his, with his training. And this guy was in a relationship, got married to like this climbing, they were like the climbing Hollywood couple, and then she left him for someone else. And the guy spent five to six years on the side of a wall trying to figure out the unclimbable wall to run away from his pain in rain or snow or storm. And, and it's, 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 I don't want to bring this as a downer, but if yeah. people don't understand what people are going through, if someone lives on the side of a wall for six years in the snow just to try and run away from it, it's, it's, uh, it was pretty compelling. Anyway, um, don't want to get into. I'm getting emotional. It's early, man. It's not good. Um, pull back. So I you, think that's all right. <laughs> so you are. You've come out of school. You got a journal job. Um, you finished it, and you went straight to a straight to a biking magazine. Let's go back. That's there. That's, ex- is that '77? Yeah. Where, where are we back? That's to? then. We are talking about '80. '80. Because okay. it took me two years to do this apprenticeship yeah. at the newspaper, and then uh, I, I was in a football stadium, in a soccer stadium. Being a reporter for football, when I in Stuttgart, in Stuttgart, yeah, yeah actually in Stuttgart, the VFB, the VfB Stuttgart, yeah, the Verein für Bewegungsspiele. Did you know it was the Bundesliga? Yeah, the the Premier League in Germany, and I was a, a journalist at this game, meeting another journalist who did this as a hobby because he was working with the motorcycle magazine yeah. and he said to me as things fall into place sometimes in life well if you want to work with motorcycles why do you, don't you simply come to us and he passed away from me and I, I went there for a, for, for a year yeah. and then to cut a long story short I then re- realized that that was not the way for me to continue with mm-hmm. the uh, with the which was basically a nine to five job um, and uh, I resigned and went out of my own so, in those days, was MotoGP a thing? Was the circuit up? Was it global from a racing perspective? Funnily, I, back then, 1980, now we have 2019. Yeah. 1980, I didn't know not a lot of mo- about MotoGP. That's it 39 was, years ago. Yes. Yeah. I only know it was much smaller. There was hardly any, any television coverage. I went to, to a race at the Nürburgring that year, which was, which was amazing. But it was you could not compare anything to what it is now. There was no no real money in the sports. There were the manufacturers, but there were no big sponsors. I think Marlboro was the first was the first tobacco sponsor that just come came in at the beginning of the eighties. Other than that, it was just it was just like almost like a gentleman's sport. Yeah. So I just want to pull back to your your thought process at the time. So obviously yeah. it came through. Finished uni, did your apprenticeship, did a year there. I mean, deciding to leave. Like yes. That's the ballsy move, right? I mean, you, you obviously, exactly. you're at a young age, and, and, I, and I know you and I have this in common, but just that confinement of being nine to five. What, what, where, I guess, where at a young age did you just have that courage to do that? Or was it just something inside you? Or what, if you can remember back, what, what was it that made you just walk away from a job? It was it was very clear for me that this was not the lifestyle I wanted, and I saw other very frustrated. I, I was not very frustrated, but yeah. I saw very frustrated people around me, and I thought, well, something is wrong here. And um, I met a guy who was the, to me the ultimate adventure. 
he he was a school teacher, but he had so much free time that he simply grabbed motorcycles and uh, traveled yeah. and sent travel reports in. And uh, I had to edit some of his travel reports, and they were not very well written. But anyway, he was a, he was a, a nice guy, and he crisscrossed all of all of Europe with uh, testing motorcycles. Wow. Back then, the manufacturers were were very generous and uh, and supported people working for magazines with equipment and with uh, test bikes. That uh, he he even got his fuel paid, and I said, hmm, that sounds much better than than what I'm doing. Yeah. So. I resigned and left. And what and is I, what is your family's support at that time? For, oh, I had none. Huh? None. My, I'm in a sense. I was never brandished like that, but I was the black sheep in the family because I, I had, I, I abandoned all uh, opportunities of having an academic career, and I yeah. went to a motorcycle magazine, which absolutely nobody understood. <laughs> so I understood it because that's what I wanted to do. And once I was done with it, after a year, I wanted to travel. So I did exactly the same. I uh, I uh, grabbed motorcycles. I talked to the importers more than the manufacturers. Yeah. Well, BMW was a manufacturer. I got one of their bikes too for, for one of the trips. But anyway, I had were Yamahas. Making, and, were BMW making bikes in the days? Back oh, in, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I had one of the GS100s, 1100s. I had a GS800 oh, okay. back then, and I crossed the Sahara Desert on it. Oh, no ways. Yeah. So I would do trips and... Uh, and as long as possible, and I would stretch my very, very limited budget and then sell my, my articles back to the magazine that I just had resigned from. <laughs> and, uh, and in the process, they started se uh, sending me, or, or freelance, freelance, mm. freelance, they sent me on assignments. So I, I simply started going to races, not because that was, that racing in particular was my passion. It was because it was a job on hand. Yeah. And I said, okay. I checked that out. So, so where, where, where was some of the cool trips you went to? I mean, Sahara sounds epic. Where, where else? I remember, I remember one trip where we went to a 24-hour race in Italy. Yeah. And uh, um, that was a really cool trip. We, back then, just times were different. We stayed in this little, little pension, got, got hopelessly drunk on, on grappa and red wine that <laughs> night, played table soccer yeah. until the early hours in the morning, until we had uh, we thought, now oh, it's probably time to, to get back to the racetrack and see if, if, if anybody is still out there racing, because we didn't know. I mean, you just, uh, a 24-hour race starts at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. At some stage, you said, okay, I've seen enough, I go for dinner. Yeah. And then in the next morning, you go, go there hoping that, that somebody is still on the track. And of course, they were. Now, after that, it was just, these days because we did not have internet to transmit photos or articles so yeah. we basically had to go home and the magazine was waiting on monday morning now we are talking stuttgart and italy just for anybody that uh, doesn't know the topography topography it was a like a 1100 kilometer trip and wow. of course we drove the night through to to get back home <laughs> after a long night before and after doing this whole race coverage and so on and so on and i remember distinctly on that trip we came into the rush hour traffic at, let's say, 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning, getting into Stuttgart. Yeah. And we had, it was a colleague and myself, and we had uh, red eyes, of course, yeah. from this long trip through the night and uh, fighting sleep, possibly, knowing that we had another long day in the office ahead of us. But we looked around all this these turn faces waiting in their traffic jam to get to work, yeah. and we thought... 
But we does might be tough, but it feels. <laughs> I don't want to be one of those. Yeah, yeah that's, that's one. Of, that's one of the memories. One of those moments. Yeah, that's it's. Uh, yeah, when when you when you see people stuck in that commute down day, I'm like, oh man, life is good, right? Yes. So so yes. so so you did the adventure trips, and then when did the so from a MotoGP, as you said, infinite sort of in, in its infancy in those days. Who who were the big stars in those days, or were there any stars? Who who were the? Let's go get. Uh, Right back to the beginning, beginning of 1980. Yeah. <clears throat> this was this race on the Nürburgring. Now, Nürburgring is a 21-kilometer track, which uh, is, uh, was always nicknamed the Green Hell. Oh, wow. Because it was just this undulating track with I don't know how many, uh, they counted out, 110 curves or 85, yeah. I don't know. But it was just imp- for a novice, impossible to learn. And uh, I was, uh, I, did, I didn't race there, but I did riding trainings there and stuff like and I know how difficult it is to this day I wouldn't know my way around without yeah. somebody so anyway and uh, and back then there was a German writer called Tony Meng and a South African writer yeah. you might have heard the name by the name of John Eckerold no. never heard no. and they were fighting for the not the premier class but for the 350 cc championship which was one level below the, the premier so 500, yeah, 500 the is the top, was yeah. the top at that time. Now oh, it's called MotoGP. And 350 was the class below that. But there were back then six or seven different categories. They yeah. narrowed that down a lot. Yeah. Anyway, and um, on the starting line, John Eckerold had his wife and his young, young child. And he, it was the fight, it was the last round. It was yeah. the fight for the championship. And he was so determined that he said goodbye to them. And he said something along the line, but it was like title or death. Wow. It was like, I am going to give up. I am putting everything on the line for the title. And this was a very strong emotion. There were no tears, of, the, but I could sense the, the incredible determination. And I thought... That is that is really special. That is more special than the the whole, whole track action itself. But this just this hundred ten percent focus of what you want to do achieve and what you what you want to do on that day was just uh, probably the strongest memory from. from wow! The, but I mean, just especially you know both of us with kids, like seeing your daughter and doing that, like to have you know that's that's. Oof. That's deep stuff, right? Because it's I, deep stuff. I mean, it's just, uh, I, because I mean, I do stupid stuff myself, right? But this is, and 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 they people say when you get kids, your consequences change, and they do, right? You make smarter choices because of of that. But standing trackside and looking at your wife and your daughter and and having that commitment to your cause is just oh, it's, 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 it's next just level. Next right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And this, but I only bring I'm only bringing this up because this showed me. That these are extraordinary people. Absolutely. Uh, but going back to what I said before, this is almost the exception of the rule because at any given time, I would say 99% of the cases, they are well aware of the risk and what they are doing, and the survival rate is very high. Yeah. So, unlike common perception of this this board, yeah. normally things don't happen. Yeah. So, so from a from your I guess freelancing career when you. That was, say, your first MotoGP. Where did it transition over the years where, you, where it became a full-time thing where you were doing the circuit? It started transitioning, which is only probably four years later. That was also an amazing experience. What happened was, back then I was, even though I had done and I continued to do, 
all these motorcycle road trips where yeah. I took photos myself, landscapes, uh, put your bike in a nice position, have a girl with you that poses or whatever. <laughs> which <laughs> Occupational hazard. <laughs> occupational hazard, yeah. Which was all fun to do. I did not have the equipment or even the idea to become a racing photographer. And is that when you got into photography, just kind of It was the, the travel bit more, than, more yep. than anything else. Having said that, during my apprenticeship, I was, I was also taking photos in black and white and developed them. So we, had, we still had the black, in uh, the black in a dark chamber, room. how do you say, the dark, dark room, room yeah, yeah. To, to develop them, which was probably the first steps. But anyway, later on, in 90, uh, let me go back to 1994. There was also... 84. Um, 84, 1984. We lost a decade quickly. We lost a decade. <laughs> a photographer and I, I mm. was a journalist. I traveled with a photographer. We went to Barcelona to another 24-hour race. And what happened was, first we went to the local BMW dealer who had built, and in Germany this didn't exist, who had built a racing bike on the base of a BMW, which was... Pretty outrageous on, out of a German perspective, yeah. because back then BMW did not want to be associated with racing anymore. Yeah. That was a thing of the 50s and 60s. Anyway, so we, we went to their workshop and he had his studio equipment, which I all admired. So we did that part. But then it turned out that the race we actually wanted to go to was a week later. We had no idea. We somebody messed something up in the calendar. So Oh no, it's stuck in Barcelona for a week. Stuck in Barcelona. So we went to Sigis, which is the next beachside village village uh, half an hour out of Barcelona and grilled ourselves in the sun for a few days. Sure enough, this photographer, he was very clever. He had his girlfriend with him, I didn't. And uh, he uh, baked in the sun at the expense of the magazine for a few days. Come two days before the race, yeah. he said I have to go. I can't help you. I have to really go. But you know what? And we explored the sites of this 24-hour race again, yeah. I said. And it was, oh, sorry to, get to, to go into that at, at length, but it is really, really interesting. Because back then, this was at the Mount Huge, which is a mount within, within a hillside within Barcelona itself. And the road was simply, how do you say that, uh, cut off yeah. to... To public traffic and it was running along palaces and just beautiful buildings around the hill because at the turn of the century before like early 1900s they had a world expo in Barcelona yeah. and they were left with all these beautiful pavilions and palaces so along these pavilions and palaces they had uh, they had uh, made the track which was just and it was the last time ever they, they held a race there wow. because then all the considerations of danger uh, took over and they went to modern racetracks. And this is why, for instance, the famous uh, race in, uh, on the Isle of Man, Isle of Man that's every year yeah. is still in place. But it's probably one of the very, very few that are still held on road courses because yeah. the death toll is there every time. Anyway, so it was, it was in the middle of the city and the starting line was in front of what was called the Crystal Palace. It was mm. a, a palace with a massive, massive glass dome all lit up at night time. Yeah. And at 8 o'clock in the evening, that's where the supposed start was going to happen. So this photographer said, you know, you take a tripod like this one. I leave you my tripod. And I had my camera with me, to, yeah. but just with a short lens. And he said, 
put your camera there, come 8 o'clock and you hear the start happening, put this on 30 seconds and you will have your opening shot. I did exactly that. It turned out beautifully. And for the rest of the night, I wandered around. It was all with the right ticket. You could go basically yeah. half a meter next to where these motorcycles wow. were. I stood in these palaces and between columns and stuff like that and tried to do all these fancy shots that, that, that showed a little bit of the surroundings. So that turned out very well. And th at that point, I thought, actually... Racing has something really, really special. Yeah. You know, this, uh, this combination of, uh, of people doing something absolutely crazy in, in this sort of environment and, and the things you see and experience. Okay. And this is when I started to, to tell myself, you need to get better equipment. You have to do this more often. Yeah. So I bought myself the first really long lens um, and uh, went to the racetracks. And since I had plenty of friends there or made friends, yeah. I asked the other photographers, look, what's the aperture? What's the time? What do I have to do there? And like this, I learned and grew into it. Because uh, just two things. I mean, I guess those are the days where it's not, you know, I always harp on about the instant gratification world, right? Where you take a picture and you can see what you've got. Those you, mm -hmm. you're taking, I mean, you, you know, you, you, you shoot away and you've only got so much on a film and you don't know what the shot is until you've, you know, finished the loop. I guess which makes it even more special because you you're playing and you're tweaking, but you don't have that instant feedback from different aperture settings and all the different things that you had to do. Look, it made it really hard, and it made it made it hard until well into the '90s because first of all, as you say, you don't know what you shot. Yeah. So you had to be pretty spot on with your yeah. with your light metering and with all the rest yeah. of it. But then also. Um, Again, when other people started to to celebrate, we were, or I was, rushing off wherever in the world to the next airport, either trying to find a passenger that would be kind enough uh, for a bottle of red wine or whatever, yeah. to say, okay, look, this is nothing dangerous, look into it, it's just a bag of rolls of films, yeah. can you please bring them to Germany? Wow. Uh, somebody will be at the gate and uh, come with a some pralines or a bottle of wine and take that off you. Or I would go to the, uh, to the, to the, um, not passenger plane, but to the cargo, cargo sorry. Plane, yeah. I would go to the cargo yeah. section and officially try to, to have an air cargo launched with images that uh, were supposed to, to be at home in time for the next magazine, which often meant, especially from, uh, places far away like Japan or South Africa or Malaysia or something that we would rely on shots from Praxis on a Friday because yeah. if we didn't send them off on Friday there was no way they, they were in the magazine on Monday oh, it's, it's, it's just it's, it's insane how quickly this world's moved man absolutely yeah, I mean, it's not so long ago and then we moved on to, and then we moved on to not shooting on um uh, color slide film, which is the proper thing to do yeah. to, for magazine prints. We shot a normal, a normal film that you negative color negative film yeah. that you use for prints, and had our own scanners for a while, for wow. probably two or three years yeah. in the press room. So we tried to scan these lousy images into the scanner and then send them through the phone line, which mean, meant we could probably offer. <laughs> A dozen grainy pictures of a of, yeah. uh, of a race meeting, but we thought we are the pioneers of the world with them. <laughs> Good old dial-upry, <laughs> you know. And then and then it, not long after that, the first 
proper digital cameras came out with good quality but very low, low resolution. Yeah. So you were probably constrained to an image size A4, let's say, as a, an absolute, absolute magazine. Max, yeah. And now they have surpassed uh, anything that we had before in the old days with film. I mean, it's that's pretty amazing. We, we're talking, this is, for those watching online, this is filmed on an iPhone, right? In 4K. Oh, look, uh, it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's nuts. Oh, look, if you see what, what you can do these days with drones, with little iPhones, with just little snapshot cameras, yeah. it's just absolutely amazing. So pulling back to yeah. your first GP experience, and you said you said there was something special there. Now, from the outside in, the, the motor, like I guess the whole F1 MotoGP world seems ridiculously glamorous you know you're flying around the world there's beautiful people there's fast cars there's champagne at a young age was that what drew you in or was it more the community and the people around that that drew you in where you knew that you needed to or a combination both. of both <laughs> a combination of both i was just I was going to blow out everything yeah back then the travel tra the travel still played a huge part and oh, oh, to this day i love traveling uh, but back then i actually had the time to enjoy it more yeah so if there was a an amazing destination. I would say, yeah, I mean, yeah, I want to go there. Yeah. I and I'm. I consider myself lucky. We've talked about memories before this morning with a coffee. Uh, I consider myself lucky to have all these memories. I consider myself lucky that I have been in South Africa. I don't know, maybe a dozen times, and and out of half of these dozen times, I, I have lasting memories. Yeah. Um, I, and this goes goes for many countries that I probably wouldn't have seen without without that job. So I'm grateful for that. And this was a keen interest, and this is a keen interest. I always I became a journalist to travel, yeah. to see other places, to connect with other cultures, to see new things. And I had a competition competition with a colleague, just a fun competition. We would we would tick off countries and uh, reward ourselves country points for. For every country. So, so how many countries have you been to? I stopped counting at probably 85 or 90. <laughs> <laughs> A life yeah. well lived. But Just, again, yes. again, Clint, it all sounds more glamorous than it actually was because, yes, when I was very young and with no strings attached, no family, yeah. the compromises start, started coming in later in life. Uh, if you are young and with no string attached, let's say the 80s still, there was there was the first Grand Prix in uh, in Australia. I remember to, to was this that in Melbourne. No, it was in Phillip Island. Oh wow! Okay. It was always in Phillip Island. Then interrupted for a few years when they had it in Sydney, in yeah. Eastern Creek, and then it went back to Phillip Island because the Victorian government prouds itself of having the premier motorsports event in their state. That's yeah. why they both happen in Victoria. Okay. And uh, again. Uh, uh, stopping the road traffic for a road course in in Melbourne works for cars mm. uh, because the cars can glide along guardrails in the worst in, in the worst case if you do this on a motorcycle yeah, you, yeah. you injure yourself yeah. so you need a proper circuit and Phillip Island offers that so I, I mean I resonate you with the travel thing because you know my my kids say oh I'm so lucky you get to stay in a hotel often and I'm it's 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 exceptionally glamorous from the outside, but they're also the dark days as well of that grind. You know, for me, a, I always said a, a hotel room is soulless. You know, it's just a, 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 whether you're in a six-star hotel or a one-star hotel, a hotel room is a hotel room. 
when you when you when you're on the grind, right? Yes. Um, and that's obviously later in life once you've got kids at home and family to get to, and all that stuff. So eighty four, right? So now you're doing this. When when did the GP circuit kick off? Like when when did it become? For me. Yeah. Well, for you, when you actually just hit that circuit full time. Um, you know, when did I guess from <clears throat> from someone who's not in. So when did it go, I guess, from the 500 to the MotoGP and when did it become, say, a 14-leg circuit? This was, uh, okay, the back, back then there were, there were also 12 or th- already 12 or 13 races a year, Yeah. most of them in, in Europe. I would actually say, with a few exceptions before my time, I don't know, know how long, let's say, the South Africa Grand Prix dates back, but... That was in Kailani, wasn't there? In Kailani, Kailani. Yes, Kailani. Oh, Kailani, yeah, Kailani. Just, yeah. just at the outskirts of Johannesburg. And they had the F1 there as well, I think. Exactly. Yeah. And then it went to a God-forbidden place by the name of Welcome, which was a gold mining town. It was uh, the only reason it always went there, because somebody found a clever way to siphon money into his, his back pocket, you know. In South Africa? No. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. No. It's a st- no, you wouldn't think so. No, no, never. <laughs> That's anyway, less than so, sarcasm for those who don't know. So I, I realized that um, working for a magazine going to the odd race is okay. Yeah. But to turn this into a job that actually supports me uh, and gives me a steady income, I had to go to all races yeah. in the World Championship. And this had to do with the fact that even though magazines were much, much stronger back then than they are today. So um, back, magazine work was always the backbone of what I did, but I needed additional income. And this additional income was provided by teams and sponsors. And only when I decided to go to all races everywhere for the whole calendar, I started to have this as my full full and only job and this was in 1989 and then nine so, and, so, so talk about teams and sponsors so you were actually yeah. getting endorsed by or funded by the brands themselves the teams to, to to report on their riders was that the arrangement as well as the free we are always talking about particular teams and particular sponsors so you never work for the teams or the category or something like that it yeah. was always a one-off and now i give you an example when i then started to to do this full-time. Tobacco was still the driving force in in motor racing in general. And it was fun fun times because the the money was there, uh, uh, the teams were well-funded, magazines were still strong, and uh, all these tobacco sponsors had a keen interest in as much repercussion as possible. Yep. Which they st- they claim to this day that all this uh, all this banning tobacco, which I fully understand and yeah. am all for it, but they still claim it was never to fight for new people smoking. It was always to fight for market market share. But let's leave it as it as it is. I, I still, you know what? Because uh, growing up in South Africa in apartheid, we used to get the Peter Stuyvesant adverts in yeah, in, yeah, the, in, the, the, in the movies. Of course, and I, and you know, traveling wasn't a thing for us growing up. It just wasn't a concept, and we used to watch those adverts. And okay, for sure, the women in there were, were gorgeous, right? I mean, there's that, but it, it it was like I distinctly remember that sense of freedom and exploring and going and to beautiful places. I remember the song. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so I mean, it, it's it's. I mean, 
you know, this, I've, I've never smoked, but the cigarette brands that were so strong, you know, back in the day, their marketing was just amazing. Well, we all, back then, back then we all smoked and I regret it now, but I never smoked like 20 a day. But anyway, I smoked. We all, we are, I mean, we all wanted to be the camel man at some stage <laughs> in our life, I think. Well, I was the HB man. Really? HB is a German, it's a, it's actually, it later, it later, uh, it was British American tobacco. Yeah. It later on became swallowed by... I don't remember now. Anyway, it was British American tobacco, like Lucky Strike. Yep. German brand HB, and uh, they sponsored not in, again, yeah, in the premier class as well. But I, my role was helping with uh, being basically being the press officer of a two fifty team, which was the second low class, the second highest class then because three fifties didn't exist anymore. And they had German riders, a German team structure, yep. and they were very keen in repercussions. So what they did was not only did they issue daily press releases and daily photographs that back then we distributed not on the internet but with uh, copies of color slides and with printed uh, with printed black and white shots because newspapers they still used yep. used all that stuff. They also did a. Um, a video of every race and it was a short video clip of uh, four or five minutes and my job was to be in Munich on a Monday morning with the prom with the head of promotion that set it all into motion and actually come up with the text that a prof professional speaker then because yeah. I have a heavy accent I couldn't have done it a professional speaker put on this video that then was broadcasted so we went to, to the race for three days. Yeah, so let's let, let's map let's map your weekend, your schedule. So yes. you, you, you the good part is coming. Let me say that. Yeah, go, go go. To make this all work, yeah, there was no other giants than a Learjet. So, no ways. <laughs> so my weekend would start. Let me let me let me explain that. Oh, life my goals week, right there. Yeah. My weekend would start because I was based in Stuttgart, and back then, because I in I was in love with America. I had, I had bought myself a red Corvette in America. Yeah. <laughs> that was my car. As you do, yeah. Brought it, brought it home. A used one, whatever yeah. I could afford. So I would jump in my red Corvette, drive with the rooftop open, to, if it didn't rain, to Munich. Yeah. Sleep there in a nice hotel, uh, in the Steigenberger Hotel, next to the airport, with the HB people. On HB's uh, account, I'm sure. On HB's account. Yeah. There was a half a dozen people that worked in that... Uh, uh in that particular uh, uh what do you say team, subject guess, yeah. well it had nothing to do with doing it was just to in this promotional team so to speak yeah. so we were not even strongly linked to to the to the race team the race team they did their own schedule and they had their own means of transport so sometimes we would take the rider because we he also lived in bavaria close by so he was sometimes on the plane with us but apart from that it was just us, four, five, six people of this promotional team. We would then go to the racetrack. I'm talking about Europe. Overseas, there was no Learjet. But let's say southern Spain. No, I'm going to edit that part out. There was a Learjet always. <laughs> okay, like, Learjet. In my mind, there's always a Learjet, right? <laughs> so we jumped into the Learjet. There was no champagne going there because what? we had to go. You've ruined it again. There was, there was champagne. Yeah. Okay, no, no, no. So we would go there, have a nice time on the plane, enjoy the ride. And, That's uh, awesome, man. And I even remember sitting with the pilots, they were young pilots, yeah. and they said, look, can you see that? Because the Learjet was flying that high, 
I would say in ten in feet in, instead of ten or eleven thousand feet like a normal yeah. passenger plane, they sometimes went up to twelve, thirteen thousand feet, and you could actually start seeing the curvature wow. of the Earth. So that was that was nice. So we went then uh, landed wherever in Jerez de la Frontera or wherever, went to to do our job at the racetrack. I would go out, take photos, speak with the riders after every session, put a press release together, supply photos if, if and needed. And were you to. doing video as well? Was someone else, no. someone else is managing that? Also, video is highly restricted in MotoGP uh, um, because <clears throat> they can't ban printed media. Printed media has right of access in, in every event yeah. around the globe. So you can't ban printed media from politics, from the Olympics, from whatever happens in the world, even yeah. accident scenes. You yeah. mean, the, the media, so a static, a static image. Yes, media, a printed media, yeah. static image uh, articles uh, by a law have access to everything. Of course, you have to be accredited yeah. and they can check if you are... Uh, a valid uh, a valid journalist they can reject you on the basis that there are already too many or whatever but in principle as a journalist you have access everywhere as long as it's printed media the copyright issues with uh, video are a different story since potentially you could make money out of uh, youtube youtube video or yeah. broadcasting MotoGP and it's there when they say oh hang on a bit you need a sticker on your camera if you don't have this sticker which of course they charge you for we, we kick you out yeah so no videos were was banned then even back in 89 or oh, it was much stricter than, stricter than it is now yeah. because now they realize that for social media they can't stop all of it yeah. so they allow allow people journalists or uh, um, uh, press officers like like i was back, yeah. back at the time to have their little smartphone and have a little clip of their rider, not on track, but but when they come back to the uh, into the garage and talk so about not, so on track, owned by the event. Yes, you can. You either pay for your own sticker and they uh, charge you yeah. depending from the purpose, or you simply go to Donna. Donna is the uh, is the managing authority. It's a, it's a Spanish company that uh, basically markets. MotoGP since I think 1993 yeah uh, and they do fantastic footage everybody please uh, just for your own interest go to MotoGP.com and have a look how good their video footage is yeah. it's amazing yeah. and you can obviously buy into it yeah. so you can say okay I have this certain team and rider and I want footage with that and they follow them and they do exactly what you want and they charge you according to your budget and so, uh, so how do you, I mean how do they looking at today's age where everyone watches a MotoGP with their phone and social media. I mean, how, you, you can't control that content going out. I think what, what's, what's been their stance? Because it's a different world. I think their stance is to, to just provide the right quality. And to and look, it's like in a in a pop concert. Even though they're in a pop concert, they probably still take your camera away if they catch you out. Right. But you simply can't. You simply can't have uh, uh, Beyonce singing half a kilometer away yeah. from from you with yeah. your smartphone and think you can make money out of it. It just doesn't work. No, I know. So I think they 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 have they now tolerate this to a certain extent. Now, if they find content 
on the internet that is not authorized. I mean, there are accident scenes or, or other crazy maneuvers yeah. that people cut out from their television coverage, put on YouTube, and it takes two hours, it disappears again. Oh, so is that, they are, is that, okay, they are watching that very, very carefully. Wow. And every standard stuff that somebody takes with their smartphone, I think they just ignore. A yeah. little bit of social media stuff they can't, can't be bothered, bothered with. There's no such thing as bad press, right? <laughs> <laughs> so back to the Learjet. <laughs> so back to the Learjet. So we would arrive on scene, yeah. do, do our work um, for three days, and then a Sunday night... Uh, much earlier than I would have liked to be because I left lots of work undone in the press room, but yeah. that was the better job. So I would, uh, it was also nice then, you know, yeah. so we would uh, uh, jump back in our rental cars, go back to the, to the airport, to the, to the private aviation side of the airport, jump back in our Learjet, and then, because for the rest of them, the work was done, basically. Yeah. We would have champagne as much as the galley provided. Yeah, brilliant. <clears throat> Followed by dinner in the Steigenberger Hotel in Munich again. As you do. <clears throat> and they all went to sleep. Yeah. I went to write. Okay. Not for the video, because I still had my the motorcycle magazine to take care of, which also on a Monday morning waited, uh, waited about uh, for my fifteen or 20,000 characters of article. So <clears throat> I, would, I used to work the night through have a coffee in the morning, go to the studio, which was a half-day job, uh, to provide them with the additional stuff. Because at that stage, I, I never saw the video. So I saw that, yeah. I saw this clip on a Monday morning, nine o'clock in this uh, Munich studio. Munich is a big film and video town. Yeah. So they do a lot of uh, movie and uh, television productions there. And, and in one of these studios, they would work on the video and do, do the voiceover. <clears throat> so I would sit there with the computer one or one and a half hours later the speaker would come and then we would uh, we would do it all the voice over together and by early afternoon I would go home and finally sleep crazy and then when was the circuit every second week or every week or was this just a pattern yes this started to change back then we had <clears throat> to my memory 13 races and this was an, a slow but steady increase yeah Back then, the only overseas races, overseas from the German, yeah, or the, from yeah. the European perspective that I remember, were South Africa and uh, Japan. Yeah. <coughs> Soon Tokyo, after. Was that in? Uh, no, it was first in a place uh, um, uh, called Suzuka which ah, is a few hours away from Tokyo. It's actually closer to Osaka. Yes. Than, than Tokyo, which is a... That's down south, right? Yes. Yeah. And it's a beautiful racetrack. However, in 2005, a Japanese rider, a Japanese hero and world champion died on this racetrack. Wow. He had a freak accident where he slammed into a concrete wall that ran alongside the track and uh, basically alongside the start and finish straight, probably 30 meters away from the tarmac. And nobody ever considered that a danger because it was a straight line. Yeah. But <clears throat> it was at the time when they introduced uh, fly-by-wire systems on motorcycles. So it was an electronic throttle control. And to this day, nobody knows exactly what happened. Of course, Honda strongly denies it. But uh, uh, the, going, the, the saying, uh, the rumor back then where that the electronic throttle played up, his bike went sideways and did a 90-degree turn straight into that wall. 
And this poor guy, his name was Daijiro Kato. He died on the scene, yeah. and as Japanese are, rightfully so, with their ethics, there was ne never a MotoGP race again on this racetrack. Wow. So, so let's. I mean, let's. Sorry, that was a. No, I mean, it's just quite interesting. It's going into death, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, and thinking of, of free solo again, you know, just what happens in the climbing community when someone dies, and the what what. what how does that affect the races? Because they, they obviously understand the consequences, they know the consequences, they're willing to go there. But just the, when, when something tragic happens, when, you know, I guess if people are pushing the envelope, something will, you know, it's going to happen. How, how did that affect the, the vibe, the energy and, and everyone around the track at that time when, those, when these tragedies do happen? It's shock across the paddock. That's the first emotion. Yeah. And it's a strong and genuine emotion because, as I said earlier on, these things don't usually happen. Yeah. And even if they happened and, got, uh, and thank God they don't, even if they happen frequently, it would still be something unusual. Very unusual. So shock is the predominant uh, sensation there. And uh, in the first moment, there are, there's also a number of people not so much the riders, but people associated with, uh, with the riders or with that particular riders. May, may it be the team manager, may it be a personal manager, may it be a family member, yeah. may it be a mechanic that say, I want to quit. I don't, I don't want to see that paddock ever again after this horrible appearance. Because, I mean, so, I think for them, they, the, the, the support structure will understand the consequence more than the person in it. Yes. Because if, 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 you, if you're the pro... Yes, you would have you'd have to be at that level utmost belief in your ability, but those surrounding you don't have that same clarity, I guess. Yes, but this is always I have to say, and this is not a cynical remark; it's just the way it is. This is always a temporary, a temporary reaction, whereas the underlying emotion does not change. When this Japanese writer died, for years and year, years, writers close to him on the podium went yeah. went like with gestures like that uh, remembering him this way and uh, this remembering I have to say especially with famous writers goes on for years and years and years and years maybe forever yeah. so this it's not that they are forgotten this does not happen what gets pushed to the side is that this could potentially happen any day again Yep. But this gets pushed aside in the normal way that we go about our daily business too. Like Alex Honnold says in this documentary, any and everybody of us could die every day. Yeah. We could have a car accident. We could, even though it's only a remote possibility, we could have be one of the, those uh, unlucky ones that fall down in an aeroplane. We could, and people forget that all, all the time, yeah. we could be diagnosed with a terrible disease any day, day of yeah. our life. So the, the, the potential of dying is there with each and every one of us every day. The, the, I mean, I, for, <clears> my, for my passion of the ocean, I always, you know, so it's a bizarre thing. I, yeah, I'm, as, as those who listen, I'm a computer nerd who lives in the sea, so it's the complete opposite, right? But generally, the people I speak to, they're like, well, what about sharks? What about this? Aren't you going to die? And in, in the aquarium in Cape Town in South Africa, there was this amazing, um, yeah, they, had, they had this sort of big screen running up, and then they'd have the classic jaw scene, and then they'd have people running out of the water, and there'd be a panic, and then there'd be a plastic bag floating there. 
And they said, didn't you know that more people die every year of a plastic bag than do by sharks? And next thing, then they have the chair floating there. Something like 18 people die a year because of a chair or whatever, whatever the, you know, the random thing was. But, the but see, you know what? I think there's, we are touching a very, very important point there that, that, goes, that goes beyond a particular topic. Yeah. And I think the point that we are touching here is uh, about conquering our fears. And there is this old, and it's a wrong saying in my opinion, it says, uh, if you love your life, risk it. I think that steers people in the wrong direction. Yeah. However, there is a degree of truth in it. Because if we don't confront our fears, and if we don't try to overcome our fears, we don't learn about ourselves, and we don't have this exhilarating adrenaline once we stepped out of our comfort zone and did something that we thought was entirely impossible. Yeah. And I have a very, very good example for that. And this very, very good example is probably one of the safest things that you can do on, on the planet, and this is bungee jumping. <laughs> Everybody, yeah. especially me, I have a fear of heights. Which <laughs> I probably, that's why this Alex Honnold uh, documentary fascinated me so much. I always wanted to, to hill climb, yeah. and I can't. Put me on a skyscraper without a railing on top, and I'm absolutely freaking out. I can't stand on heights like that without, without a railing. Yeah. So with a railing, I'm okay. With something to hold on to. But you know, when I see like these old images in New York, how the skyscraper builders sit on this, on this double T uh, steel uh, tea. I thing. Love is, the, I love having, those old photos. I love these yeah, old photos, yeah. but I look at this and I said, there's absolutely, you could drag me up to my neck. There is absolutely no way I yeah. can do that. So, uh, bungee jumping. I've done bungee jumping in Australia. Yeah. I've done it in France. Where else? Maybe that's enough. But I've done it two or three times. And uh, uh, as a matter of fact, fact uh, AJ Hackett, the founder of bungee jumping, the Kiwi guy, yeah. he sponsored a, a motorcycle team for a very short period of time. So I got to know him personally. Yeah. And he took me and a few other peoples and a few motorcycle teams to his his side in France. And everybody that stands on an 80 meter bridge pillar with nothing attached than a short bridge, yeah. because it has to be in, in the middle of the valley, and that was a, a, a railway bridge where no railway was running yeah. anymore. So everybody that finally arrived at this pillar in the middle of the valley is in 80 meters of height, or was it even more, I don't know and then stands on this platform to jump down with noth nothing attached than a rubber cord to his feet, has fear. Mm. And even though it's completely irrational because nothing can happen to you, you stand there and you are fearful. And to conquer your fear and jump off that gap is an extremely rewarding experience because you overcome something within yourself and you feel good within yourself because you, you did it. Yeah. You have overcome that. So I, I think that, uh, yeah, what, what was I driving? Yeah, I think facing and confronting your fears and doing something about, about that is uh, uh, a very important thing in life. It's, yeah, I mean, I, I resonate with that so much. It's just, I guess for me is that, you know, and we spoke about this off camera as well, the more I speak to people, the more I get into what I'm trying to do and help people, the more I realize people don't know what they're capable of, which sounds cliche, but it's true. Um, and, and just no matter what that 
thing is to push your envelope. You've got to do it, right? It's it's you were speaking about Seinfeld earlier on. Um, there's there's an amazing Seinfeld effort episode with George with Opposite Day, where he does everything opposite. <laughs> I haven't seen that. Yeah. One. So so I mean, you know, George, we love George for who he is, but but he, but he does everything opposite, and he ends up with this killer job, this model girlfriend, like because he, he faced his fears and he just tried to do things differently and do you know do things, and he and anyway. But see, he, can he, I bite in? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, uh, just something else comes into mind along that mind, uh, along that uh, along that uh, topic. Um, <clears throat> I think conquering your fear even starts on a very, very basic professional level. For instance, um, when I said early on that I love traveling and that's why I pursued journalism and I went into that. I didn't feel comfortable every time I went out. Yeah. It is a big thing, especially later on in life when you have family, or especially when you just broke up with your girlfriend, which happened to me when I was young, and then when I started to go to Grand Prix full-time, or to go, what I mentioned earlier, when I went to this Africa uh, yeah. tour with the motor. I remember that was a cold winter night. It was minus 10, and I had to take my motorcycle to Genova, from Stuttgart. Mm. So I had 1,500 kilometers uh, in snow and ice ahead of me. And I felt absolutely miserable because yeah. I had problems with my girlfriend. I did not, I, I think I cried on the day like a baby because I did not want to go there. I did not want to expose myself yeah. to what I had to do. Sure enough, I, 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 I was committed to going there. I packed my motorcycle. I froze my Not so much my butt. I froze my <laughs> fingers off because yeah. and my feet yeah. because these are the 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 things that get the coldest yeah. on a motorcycle. No matter how many layers of gloves you have on, snow and ice just is terrible. I actually crashed on the on the Brenner crossing the Alps. And I just scratched along the along the icy road, picked the bike up again, and went go, went going. So it was not a pleasant trip. <clears throat> Once we were in Africa, it was the best trip I've had, I'd ever done. Because do do you, I mean there's there's the two takeaways there for me is that, and I mean this in the nicest possible way. Sometimes you've just got to man up. Sometimes absolutely because because you you've got to <clears throat> if you commit to something and you're from an I guess from an integrity perspective once you've committed you commit right and sometimes that's going to suck. Sometimes yes. that's going to hurt and that's going to sting. But if you've said something and that's your word, I believe you've got to do it. First thing. Yes. Second thing is is obviously. When you're in a state of trauma, you know where you've you you you, you know what it's like, right? It's you. There you are, your girlfriend. You've broken up with your girlfriend. You've got a broken heart. I'm painting the picture. You're in the snow. Your bike fell. You've got two choices there, right? You can either say life sucks and the world's destroying me, or you can get on a plane and and make the best out of an experience. Is that kind of something that happened to you at that time? Absolutely, and it happened to me. Many many times in in, in, in in later life, and it happens to me with happened to me with the most ridiculous little things. I mean, <clears throat> that was a bigger thing: jumping yeah. on a bike uh, in, in, and going fifteen hundred kilometers through snow and ice when you had a terrible time before and you just didn't want to be there. So that is one of the biggest things. It's yeah. still not like a war a war broke out, but mentally and well, in your soul, it's a bigger thing. It's but <laughs> to tell you the the smallest little examples. <clears throat> I'm not good in doing interviews over the phone. Yeah. I love confronting people in, in, in person and be one-on-one. Be on one. So, and I'm especially not good getting up at the middle of the night and doing, doing that. 
So, and since I live in Australia and I worked for the last almost 20 years from Australia, going overseas to races and coming back, commuting sort of thing, there were, I don't know how many hundreds of occasions when in the middle of the night I had to get up because there was a scheduled interview and I had to ring somebody God knows where on the planet, mostly some writer and mostly some writer that was not even overly important, but it was yeah. important for my job. And to drag myself and say, okay, now it's uh, 2.30 in the morning, I have to get up, I have to make myself up a tea, and then I actually have to face the phone, ring international and go on with it. Yeah. I, I know it sounds silly, but that, that, is a big, that was sometimes a big thing for me. So, so there's a, I mean, the key there is being on, like being engaged, because yes. it's not, it's not a, and I know this when I go to conferences as well, like you've got to be on. And yes. I come back and I'm exhausted. You can't go there and have a shitty energy and, and no, no, be no, down no. because because be then, then the person you're engaging with is not going to be on either. So exactly. it's, it's that I, I know what you know. I think what you're trying yes. to say is that you got to go right, be on, be you know, be alert, be sharp, be super, super focused at three in the morning. Exactly, because your your private life and your emotions, whether you want to do this right now, nothing of that matters because yeah. it's now about that person. Exactly. Like if you have an audience, it's not about yourself; no. it's about the audience. Yeah. And uh, with an interview, well, whoever reads the result of an interview, or the comments, uh, any writer or technician or whoever it may be gives, they are not interested in you. They are interested in what these people have to say, and your job is to get that out of them. And this is, I would. I would categorize that as a as the as the first step of conquering your daily fear. I think you you have to push yourself maybe not on a daily basis but when it comes to doing your job there there are always occasions where you have to push yourself out of your comfort zone to achieve what you what you need to achieve and also be happy with what you what you've done. And if you don't do it, you never arrive at that point. Does that make sense? It does, but I, I, from what I'm understanding, chatting to a lot of people, a lot of people don't even know what that is in terms of what they want. Yes, and this is, this is a very, very important message to get yeah. across, that leaving your comfort zone is in most occasions the right and the better thing to do than staying in the confines of your comfort zone. Yeah. But you need... Uh, yeah, and... The, the, the self-realization, I think, when the work starts is when you realize you are in a comfort zone. <laughs> yes. It puts you back into a comfort zone once yeah. you connect. But and look, I mean, this, this goes wider and wider and wider as we speak because this goes also for private life. Mm. If you are in a dark place for whatever reason, for a breakup scenario or for whatever other tra trauma you suffered in your soul, it is very, well, it's not a comfort zone, but at least you are in a cocoon for, for a moment where you can feel sorry for yourself or where you just don't have the energy to do or you think you don't have the energy yeah. to do anything else. Now, everything that I said about um, uh, getting out of your comfort zone for professional reasons applies the same way for private reasons, in my opinion. Of course, if you broke up with your wife or, or, or your girlfriend, you can't go out of your comfort zone, in my opinion, to say, okay, I'm going specifically now because we want to pick up a new girl. That doesn't work. 
Mm-mm. You know, and I'm, I know people have huge success rates, but I can't, <laughs> I can't also think about all this uh, internet matchmaking. I don't, I don't know. I don't have the experience with Define it. success. Yeah. So, <laughs> so no, I, I can't comment on that. But what I can comment on yeah. is that nine times out of out of ten, somebody invites you to come out of your comfort zone. You actually push yourself to say or let's say cocoon in this in this uh, uh, matter, you push yourself to say, okay, I pick myself up, I go there, nine times out of ten it's rewarding. Yeah. You connect with other people, you have a new influence, and and my, most of the time something surprising happens. So so here, here's some of my philosophies that you don't know about, but about pain and fear. So that the tagline on my website is, we are the lucky ones. And the reason I say that is through pain, through trauma, through whatever happens in your life, personal, professional, uh, as a human, you have an opportunity to evolve. And that's an opportunity to look within. And the reason I say we're the lucky one, because it's not a death, it's not cancer, it's not something, you know, it's just, it's a broken heart, which is fair enough. But if you take the time when you're in that dark space to evolve, to look within, to fix yourself, to become the better version of you, it's an amazing opportunity. And that's what I've tried to achieve and what I've hopefully done. The second point in terms of the dating thing, you know, and I know we spoke about this off camera, but, and I did it myself, guilty as charged. A lot of people, when they come out of a relationship, they'll just find someone to replace that void, replace that hole. And I I think that's a huge mistake because you've you've got to take time and use the time to, to A, fix yourself and B, and, and this is probably the best skill I've ever learned is being comfortable being alone. Like I was terrible at being alone. Me too. But I, I was, it's, I'm exactly the same. Yeah, it was, one of my, it was one of the hardest, hardest things to do. But once you, once you manage or you, you, you master that art, and you don't really ever master it, but once you're comfortable in your own skin, and I think that's probably where the point comes, then you're going to attract the right person. You're not going to attract the same person that you're with just replacing them with someone else. So I think that's quite important. I don't know what your that's, thoughts no, are. On absolutely, that. I completely agree with you. And uh, and when I when I, that's why I said initially, you you wouldn't leave your cocoon or your dark space targeting this new girl or something like that. I think as a first step, you just leave it to say something surprising might happen, just in terms of friendship, just to connect or reconnect with my with my normal. Friends, or when I say normal, I mean with the friends you yeah. already have. We're not normal, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but look again, in in work, this this happens or happened to me all the time. I uh, I didn't want to travel. I didn't want to to go on the next plane. By the time you, <laughs> by the time you land in Singapore, you all of a sudden boarding the next plane. You say, ah. Oh, these are the Valentino Rossi mechanics. And yeah. you have a big hello, you meet in the lounge for a glass of uh, beer or whatever. All of a sudden, you're in a completely different space. You're, yeah. you, are, you, you, you are connected to, to another world almost, you know? And all of a sudden, as you said, you switch, you switch on again. You're back on. All yeah. of a sudden, you are back on. And I think that's a very, very healthy, healthy yeah. way to, to lead your life, you know? So, so I want to I get on to Valentino Rossi, but the, the, for those who listen to the podcast, my center is finding your why, what your passion is, you know, because you've got all this free time, but it's also, as you just alluded, it's an amazing distraction. You know, if I've been feeling shitty or having a tough day, I go surf for four or five hours. It's a different world. You know, for you, it was MotoGP in the community. 
that's your world and that's your why. And that's, that's I think, so important for guys to rekindle what they may have as a teenager dreamed about and have lost along the way, but then find it again. Hence, hence me having you on today. It just it was like such a good loop there. I think it's important. So Valentino Rossi, um, the GOAT, greatest of all time is a saying that goes around. Uh, when did he come on the scene? What, I mean, from my limited knowledge, he's just streaks above everyone else. When did you see him first come on the scene and what made him so different and so good? <laughs> I saw Valentino Rossi first in Jerez. That would have been 1994, maybe. Okay. He was a kid. He was 13 or 14. Were you still working yeah. for HB at the time? or? Yes, but that yeah. was a race that happened after the after the Grand Prix. Oh, we went there for testing and they, and after testing they had, a, had the first uh, race of the national championship. Yeah. Because, I mean, all riders, they just don't just simply start on the world championship level they go, go through the ranks and he was at that stage uh, riding in the Spanish championship which was because the Spanish championship I don't want to elaborate too much but it is the championship that is the main step to move up to the world championship yeah. so he was there and he had this long blonde uh, curly hair and he had this mischief in his eyes and even though I knew absolutely nothing about it that was the first time I had a smile on my face and I thought he's quite a character so to yeah. speak even though I didn't even speak to him or anything like that and then <clears throat> uh, in 1996 actually before on the same race meeting in the Czech Republic when he ended up winning his first race in the smallest class in the 125 class I had an interview scheduled with him <laughs> because he was already then known as the young wild guy together with a few others. Yeah. The new generation that was that was coming even though he had not uh, won a race yet. And of course he didn't show up. So we had coffee with the Italian team manager. We had uh, a few espressos and he said, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and uh, sure enough, an hour later, he came with glowing eyes because he had been, he had been, um, he had been uh, go-karting all afternoon. Of course, he didn't have time for it. So that was my introduction. Of course, then we talked for a while and he was just about fun and have, have, having laughs. It was not a serious interview. Yeah. But with him doing what he did this afternoon that was half of the story anyway because he was just that kid yeah. that wanted to have fun with uh, opening the throttle no matter what and he was this extraordinary talent and because he was so much fun once he started winning races he started to think with his circle of friends back in his little village in, in Italy well how can, what can we do to make this all a bit more fun and interesting And they started to come up with all these tricks after the race was finished on the victory lap. Instead of just holding an Italian flag yeah. for a few kilometers, he came out. He came up with all these stunts. I mean, the most famous stunts was that uh, his arch enemy in Italy was was called Max Biaggi, another famous yeah. rider. He had a, a fling with Naomi Campbell, so they say. He went out with her or something yeah. like that, and to make fun of them of him. Valentino went on a victory lap with with a blow-up rubber doll that was dressed up like uh, Claudia Schiffer. So that was the, the as in the victory lap. So that was just as one example, 
fun things that yeah. that that he used to do, and there were countless of of them. Like in in England on the podium, he shows up as Robin Hood because the yes. <laughs> the race was close to Nottingham with the bow and arrow, and like I mean countless things. And what what all this did? He was such a positive, sunny character in a sense that this made motorcycle racing digestible for a wide audience. Mm. So instead of just these crazy life-defying uh, or death-defying uh, petrol heads, all of a sudden an audience grew where the whole family uh, was glued to the television and said, this is actually fun. Yeah. So he did a lot of this show, if you don't want to call it a sport. So he actually made this, uh, elevated this to what it is now. Valentino Rossi is Mr. MotoGP yeah. and he has to this day at 40 years of age and he came second at the at the second race of the season this year. So he's still on top of his game. Um, he has not only thousands and sometimes 10,000s of fans in his yellow uh, color brandishing his flags and his t-shirts yeah. and whatever at every at, at every racetrack his following is just such a following around the globe that that once he leaves this will be have a big impact on on MotoGP so yeah and and what what did he do because once again on and off right like on for the yeah. show pony blah blah, blah. Yes. when he was off what made him different was ah. there a sense of calm or, or, or because there's two sides to every coin, right? I mean, what made him, him uh, different is an incredible talent, of course, plus the perseverance and the intelligence to learn every bit of his trade, like not only to learn how to ride a bike, but how to learn how to find the setup down to yeah. to the last uh, bit of detail that you can possibly imagine. His mechanics and his uh, chief engineers always refer to him that what he says after three laps on the track during practice is like uh, you put a floppy disk in the computer and download. Yeah. That's how precise he was with his and is with his answers and what he thinks needs to be done to the to the bike or what is different from one lap to the next after when they made the change. So that's an incredible talent. And then thirdly, he was extremely good and is extremely good in psychological warfare. Yeah. In exploiting the weaknesses, the psychological weaknesses of of other riders and you know dwell of them and hit and yeah. trigger that point with them so he were he's a very very smart guy a smart operator who knows at all times what he's doing yeah. what impact it has on the media he knows how to play the media including myself <laughs> like a film how to what to feed them to make headlines yeah. but he always does it in a charming way so i think the most um uh, what we like about Valentino the most, even though he, we know that uh, deep down he is, uh, he is a shrewd businessman and he's just a shrewd operator altogether, is his charm. Yeah. And you can't, you can't make that, right? That's just no, born. You're, born, just you're born with that. It just exactly. is what it is. So, so just two things I wanted to touch on there is that I think all exceptional people have that work ethic and that, that, that's that people don't see, right? They just see this rock star lifestyle, but that 
absolute meticulous attention to detail. So that A, they not only got the talent, but they're willing to put in the work and the workload to be the best of the best. That's a common thread that will run through everyone who's exceptional. So it's, you know, it's not surprising for me to hear that. Um, second thing about psychological warfare. Uh, I listened to an amazing podcast. I think it was Tim Ferriss did Arnie, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And Arnie was, was big in psychological warfare in the 70s. So this was before you know, all this mind stuff and you know, mental health became relevant. But what he used to do to, before Mr. World, or Mr. Universe, sorry, he used to walk up to his, his one competitor and he said, oh, uh, you know, he, was like the, he gave two examples. And the one was like, oh, I'm so sorry you tore your bicep. Because obviously, pulling back, the, the, um, the, the, in the bodybuilding world, it's perfect yeah. symmetry, right? Yeah. So he walked up to a guy and said, oh, I'm so worried you tore your bicep. And the guy said, no, I didn't. He's like, oh, geez, I'm so glad. I'm so sorry. You just, you just seemed, seemed a bit smaller on your right one than your left one. And then walk away. And this guy used to stare in the mirror and like, like shit, I'm, you know, he said he, the guy was in perfect symmetry, but he used to get in his head. And then another thing, he walked up to the guy and he said, oh, geez, you're looking so good. Do you know the competition's tomorrow, not on Friday? And the guy would go, yeah, he said, oh, shit, sorry, I thought you hadn't started cutting yet. I thought you hadn't, like, you know, so he'd get in these guys' head and he, he himself, you know, he'd walk onto the podium and he said, I know I'm the best. He said, physically, some of the other guys were in better shape, but just their aura, their energy, and their, their, they, they walked onto the platform going for second place because he used to just absolutely screw with their minds. And I thought that was amazing. Valentino, I, gi I could give you countless examples, but I just give you a very, very, very small and funny one. His current teammate, which uh, his name is Maverick Vinales. Work that out for a Spaniard. But anyway, that's his name. Yeah. He is young. He's almost half the age. Well, he's probably 26 now. Anyway, he's so much younger than Valentino and he is obsessed with his weight because he, even though he's skin and bones, yeah. he just diets and diets and diets to bring even less Uh, kilos on on his bike. So, what are the riders' weight typically? Are they pints? They're little guys, right? They are usually little. Valentino is tall, yeah. but skinny ass. Yeah. So he probably weighs seventy three or seventy four kilos, and and uh, and Vinales probably sixty or something. He's much smaller, yeah. strong, but yeah. not a program of body fat. Yeah. And uh, Valentino also because they all eat at different times in the team hospitality. In the center of the paddock, in the in the, in the Yamaha team hospitality, and when if Maverick Vinales is around, eating a little bit of pasta bianca with no sauce or whatever it is, or a little bit of salad, Valentino has no bigger pride than waltzing in and ordering a pizza. <laughs> you know, just yeah. without words taken. But I mean, the message is so clear. You know, this and of course this goes. Through all levels, levels of speech, what he says, and it's about his own teammate, it's about competitors like uh, the Spaniard, like Mark Marquez, the world champion. So he plays this game on all levels. He plays it with the media. In, so, yeah, very clever, very clever, very smart. There was, uh, in, in the UFC world, Conor McGregor, obviously he got, unfortunately, schooled in his last fight, but he, he was also the master of that. You could see guys um, just, you know, just shouting at him and getting out of control and obviously fighting you have to stay calm but just messing with the head completely unfortunately for him his story didn't end too well because he got beaten up pretty badly in his last one but I, I'm, fasc I'm fascinated with that with that side of the you know the whole psychological warfare I think it's amazing nice. because you know with athletes and, and top level athletes it's you know they say from a physical capacity we, 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 we're reaching the top right but it's, it's, it's what's, what's in here that's going to 
you know, set the, set the next bar of what cars are capable of doing. Look, and racing, I don't know so much about other sports, but uh, racing is, is especially something that happens in your head. Hmm. The last second on a racetrack are in the head of a, a rider, not in the technology. And uh, that makes it special. That, that makes it really, really interesting. There are riders that just shrug off everything. And Mark Marquez, the Spanish champion, uh, current champion, he is one of these guys. Valentino tried all psychological tricks to get into his headspace, and and he Nothing. failed. So that's uh, they, he found his master there. <laughs> it's just stronger. Yeah, it's just amazing. It's crazy. So so okay. So we we went off on a bit of a tangent there. So 89, 94, Rossi's on the scene. How did you end up in Australia and how long have you been here? So how did that, you know, moving from Stuttgart, how did you end up here? And, and what did your life look like, I guess, from, from on the circuit? How many years did you do that game for, starting in 89? About 18 questions there in one. Well, um, my lucky travels brought me to Australia... Several times. Yeah. I remember the first race in 1986 in uh, in Phillip Island, where I remember during the race of the 500s, I was standing next to a tree uh, down at Lucky's, Lucky Heights at this corner there, and there was a koala next to me in the tree. That was, to me, more memorable than Wayne Gardner winning the championship, or winning the race at least. Wow, that's I think the name, Wayne the... Gardner. He was American, right? No, no, he's, he's Australian. He Works was the it. first uh, Australian ever to win the 500 crown. I think which was in 87. So in 86, he would have won the race at least. Yeah. Anyway, so my most memorable memory from Phillip Island was this koala clinging to a tree branch <laughs> and watching the race with me. <laughs> now, in 1993, yeah. as I said earlier on, for, uh, for a time, the race moved to Sydney, to Eastern Creek. We stayed in a hotel and uh, the sales manager of uh, this hotel was a beautiful girl that came to the to the racetrack also because she was accommodating uh, many team guests. Yeah. One of one of them being me with the HB team back then, and she decided she wanted to have a, a change of life and wanted to to have a to travel with the Grand Prix for a while. She she became um, a press officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, of Suzuki and uh, uh, later on we got married and when she decided after I think seven years of living in Europe it was time to go home we went home to To Sydney no we we then truly by holiday just by flug it was as spontaneous as for me to say okay if you want to go home I go with you yeah as spontaneous we went uh, on a holiday in the Sunshine Coast discovered Noosa Noosa was a growing place where you could not go wrong no. by uh, buying a block of land. Yeah. So we bought a block of land and the rest is history. We stayed in the, on the Sunshine Coast ever since. And you've been there ever since. Yes. And I was, I was actually back then determined to find a new life and a new a career of some sort yeah. without being too, too precise about it. <laughs> Which is why the MotoGP clanged to me or I clanged to MotoGP for the ensuing years up to, uh, up to up until now. So you've stepped away now from the MotoGP, wanting to step yes. away? Wanting to step away yes. uh, after just running the mass 30 years of doing it? 
35 years? I think the contract with the magazine that I worked for, which was Germany's biggest motorcycle magazine, and it was back, back, back then, they had so much advertising that the, the wire clips yeah. to hold them together were not uh, long enough and they had to reject advertising. They Grrr. wish it was that yeah. <laughs> with the decline of, of all printed media, as we all know. So anyway, after, after working for, for 36 years with them, they cut my contract. Yeah. Like they cut the contract of all freelancers for sheer financial pressure, pressure yeah. that all magazines suffer. Um, and uh, the contracts in the paddock with sponsors and with teams, they are always a come and go sort of scenario. And uh, I had a few iffy situations there. My wife opened up a business back in July here on the Sunshine Coast and couldn't stem uh, uh, family life, business life and everything together without a li little bit of support. Yeah. So a few things came together and that's why I finally said, okay, too many things pointing into that direction. I'm quitting. So uh, another amazing tangent, right, for you've lived a life of like, an amazing life, right? 36 years flying around the world, doing what you love. When, you, when you're at this crossroads now, and I think this will resonate with a lot of guys when they're in their crossroad of, shit, now what, right? Yeah. Divorce, got all this time in my hands, what do I do? What, what is your thought process? I mean, I think we both said both of us are unemployable, so we've got to work for someone else. But how are you trying to map out what's next after you've done something that you've loved for so long? This is a very interesting question. And I go back to what you said earlier on about finding new relationships and uh, heal yourself before, before you even think of that. Yeah. Now, I'm not in need of healing. However, doing something for 36 years with one magazine and a little bit longer before I had uh, firm contracts in place and, and did all the season. By now, uh, uh, by, the, by the way, uh, only because you asked before, when I started, it was 13 races. Now it's 19 during the year coming on to 20. Wow. Which is a lot of traveling if you include testing and stuff like that, yeah. which is one of the reasons also why I wanted to quit because I'm always airport, racetrack, airport, back home and so on. So there's not a lot of, lot of, lot of fun time left. Yeah. So, but back to the, back to the question. Um, yes, I'm not in need of healing. However, a change like that is disruptive. Mm. You get thrown out of uh, a vagabond lifestyle, you get not thrown out of friendship, I hope, to, to be able to hold uh, on to the most uh, important friendships. But however, you don't see your friendships, your friends anymore that frequently. Yeah. So the circle of people you work with is no, no longer there. The vagabond lifestyle with, uh, with being in southern Spain one day and being in Malaysia and in Japan the next and the third is no longer there. So that is a, is a disruptive thing. And it's like having your arm in a sling for a while until your elbow heals and you can move it again. With my wife having a, having a new business, I'm in the lucky position to not having to jump to just any job now. Yeah. And I'm able to take my time and see what the next thing will be. So I can't answer that in concrete terms what the next thing will be. However... Um, I think the thought process is always the same, that um, I'm willing to leave my comfort zone. I'm keen 
to have new and different experiences. Yeah. Whether they involve a lot of traveling or not, I don't even care. You know, it may as well be something on the Sunshine Coast that is that is really interesting. It may be kitesurfing. It may be it may whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it may be becoming a drone photographer. There are plenty of them around already. I'm just saying. I'm just yeah, throwing just, things yeah. in. Um, there are many thing potential avenues and things to go to, and I don't know yet. I only know that I'm lucky to have a little bit of time and I know that I won't let the time lapse without doing anything and falling back until the four walls around me collapse around me. That won't happen. This, that's, I mean, once again off camera, you said something about memories, which I think was was uh, was amazing. And uh, I'm, I'll let you say it again, but I, I went on a tangent uh, chatting to Freeman about how, you know, you don't take money with you and memory is important and you just you retorted about something of memories which was pretty cool do you want to try Absolutely, go down that rabbit hole because again? it's a line that i try to live by all my life and this line is that you can't live of memories because memories are a beautiful thing to have but um it's terrible if one day all you do is to tell your grandchildren or your friends how beautiful it was back at the time that, you, that when you went skiing in Austria or when you have this beautiful sailing adventure around Corsica or when you know whatever it, whatever it may be and you don't do anything anymore. I think memories only serve to sharpen your wish for more of the same or to hone your decision-making in, well, what was good for me, what was important for me, and what is the next time to to get this again or to stay along that line. Memories in themselves, I think, ser serve very little. Yeah. You can't, as I said, you can't live off memories like you like off an empty fridge. You can't live like that. You have to create new experiences. There's beer in there. It's not empty. See, here we go. <laughs> no, no, I think to... To, to feed your own heart and soul, you need exciting experiences on whatever excites you. Yeah. Right? There is no definition of what is exciting to, to any individual. But you need excitement in your life in the present. Yes. It's, not it's, in the past. Yeah, it's, it's, I guess in a, in a more harsh way, it's not accepting mediocrity and living off your past, right? It's, it's being it's, present, uh, that's creating new memories every single day. I mean... For me, that's why there are a lot of photos up in my house is because I love those memories, but you, you're constantly pushing the envelope to have new ones. Actually, actually and, and I think with these memories, for a better word, let's go to what we said earlier on. I think it is about leaving your comfort zone. Yeah. You, you must never abandon your willingness of leaving your comfort zone. And I hope if, uh, if, I, if uh, God or fate gives me health, I hope that I say the same thing in 10, 9, 15, 9, 20 years to come. Yeah. That, that at any stage of my life, there is something behind the next corner that I am willing to discover. That's, that's I think, yeah. is important. And that's such a key point, the willing to discover, right? You've got to be open to it. Because, Absolutely. Because, because the thing is, for both you know, professional, personal relationships, for everything in your life, there, I believe opportunities throw themselves at you the whole time, if you're looking. Yes. You know, if you're willing to, to, to be receptive, they're there. And it's, I say this in every podcast, but it's the same trend. Like if you, 
if you're in tune with the, with what you truly need and what is out there, amazing thing happens in your yes, life. Call exactly. that the secret, the universe, whatever it is, but you need to be willing to accept them. Exactly. And of course, certain things change in life. I'm now 20 years old and I would not go with a backpack going from bus stop to bus stop anymore. Yeah. It's just something that you do in a cert, uh, certain time in your life. And once you are hit 50 or 60, in my case, very soon, you don't, you don't do, do it like that. But this doesn't mean that you don't go traveling anymore. No. Yeah. You still go traveling, which doesn't necessarily involve a five-star hotel everywhere. No, but you path your way according to your abilities and according to what suits you at your age or based on the experience. That's where the memories come in, yep. based on the experiences uh, that, you, that you've had. I don't need to go back to certain places either, but there are others that I would like to revisit. So, of course, you... You change your approach and you change your expectations uh, from your experience with life experience. Yes, yeah. of course. Yeah, but you still have to be. And now I'm repeating myself. You still have to be open to new experiences and willing to leave your comfort zones to actually make these experiences. So that's a good place to wrap this up. I think we've been going for two hours or so. <laughs> Crazy, but it seems that long. But couple of questions I'm going to put you under the spotlight here. Uh, first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, first one is your most memorable MotoGP moment. And I know that's hard, but just something that just comes straight away. <laughs> saying, <laughs> saying goodbye to my friends at the last race in Valencia last year. Wow. That was, was a, that was a very, very emotional moment, and it was, it was off the racetrack. We went to a restaurant for a late dinner, as you have in Spain. Yeah. At 10 o'clock at night, we sat, sat down around the table. And then I said, look, guys, uh, that's, that uh, are my, my plans for, uh, for, for the future. That is, um, that is what I'm, what I'm going to do. Other than that, you know, on the positive, on the positive side, I have, I have too many to... I have too many to, to, to bring up because seeing Valentino Rossi winning championships, seeing an amazing guy like Mark Marquez um, catching his bike again when he is by all laws of physics already on the ground, yeah. sliding on over both two wheels and his knees and somehow catching that bike again. I mean, situations like that, tragic accidents, all of these things as well being in amazing places like Rio de Janeiro or or, or others look there they are I, that's very hard for me I can't I can't say this or this race yep that jumps to, to yeah. my mind you know what your your first answer was so special and if you're not you could I could see you tearing up there right because that the friend that's what it's about I mean for me you know last week I had one of my one of my best friends yeah who, who's a nerd friend right uh, and and he's he's gone his separate way into a different industry and you and you wonder but but I like I believe those friendships last. I was not tearing up when I said it, but now, but now <laughs> I, I actually feel yeah that is that is a, that is it is a strong emotion. I mean all changes in life are, are a strong emotion, but we have to be well welcoming changes in life with open arms. But it's but yeah for me, for me it's and the beautiful part is it's it's the people. It was a, that's 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 the those those bonds that you form and you can only form them when you go through those kind of your life is just like that's what I want to leave behind is those bonds with those people for me like nothing else matters 
oh look if, if we are not talking about what was the best Grand Prix if we are talking about moments yeah. for instance the the uh, boss of Donna the Spanish agency that manages the whole Grand Prix he's like Bernie Ecclestone everybody knows Bernie yeah. he's like Bernie Ecclestone in Formula 1 he's Spanish his name is Carmelo Espeletas he's in his 70s and I had a lengthy interview with him in Malaysia Malaysia two years ago I did it in Spanish he answered he talked like a book to me and it was so interesting i walked out of this like how his career came about how was life in the in the 50s and 60s in barcelona how he how he constructed racetracks and i, I mean this whole interesting life story then i put it in uh, i put pen to paper wrote wrote this lengthy interview for my magazine interestingly this article article got retranslated into spanish and published by the biggest Spanish motorcycle magazine, when they could easily have walked up to Carmelo and asked yeah. him themselves. And then I got a, a short email by Donna, by their press officer, to it was CC to Motociclismo, to the Spanish magazine, thanking us for that great uh, coverage and for that great work. That was a very special moment. Yeah. And that goes alongside with many, many other interviews that I did with managers, technicians, riders, every time you sit at a table like we do now and you can connect to a person and especially, and you are a high-profile high person too, which is such a pleasure to talk with you today, but these people that do that are on the top of their game in their field, it's always a very, very memorable moment to yeah. actually sit and ask and have the opportunity to, to ask and, you know, and get their answers. That's... Very special. Yeah, I can resonate to that completely. Second question. Go ahead. Oy, I'm going to get someone in trouble. So if you had to go watch a MotoGP somewhere in the world, someone like me, I've only been to, I've been to the F1 twice in Singapore. Where would you go? Where's the best track from a viewing perspective, atmosphere, if you had to go to one GP, MotoGP race? <laughs> Experiencing a race and from viewing perspective, Phillip Island is very spe special because yep. it's right smack bang on the ocean and it's nothing but uh, rolling green hills with a racetrack in the middle. And as a spectator, you go around a fence, which is literally 10 meters away where, from where we as photographers stand anyway, so you don't miss out on much. You are not tucked away in a grandstand miles away. Yeah. From the whole atmosphere point of view, if we take this whole experience into uh, into account, you can't go past a race in Spain or Italy, mm. which is either uh, Jerez or Barcelona or Mugello, Italy, where or Misano, Italy, where Valentino Rossi has his big crowd, because you have hundred thousand spectators. You have this incredibly atmosphere that you know this festival atmosphere that that is being created when that many people come together, yeah. and you have the paddock where see in, in philip island they all live out of containers in in europe like in the, in the formula one they have all these amazing trucks that turn out to hospitality units and where they have parties at night time yes. and you wander through this paddock and it's a, it's truly it's a it's a city on wheels that that goes from one place to the next and to experience that and this this paddock in all its grandeur is a is a very special experience. So yes, for just to see a race and to be on a track side, you have to go 
from the Australian per perspective, you have not to go further than, than Phillip Island. Yeah. And from a, an American perspective, you are well advised to go to Austin, Texas, where the Grand Prix of the Americas takes place every March. If you want to have the experience of the whole atmosphere and the, so to speak, the ground war of, yeah. of MotoGP, you have to, to go to Europe and then to Italy or Spain. Okay, so it sounds, sounds like you and I are going for a road trip to Barcelona because I'm still yet to go to Barcelona and I've, there's a big tech conference that's there every year and I need to go. But, um, and think, the nice thing about, yes. if I may add that, the nice thing about places like Barcelona and especially Misano, which is right at the Italian Riviera where all the holiday makers go and soak, soak up the sun, is that you can leave the racetrack and you are immediately in another surrounding. You are immediately in yeah. another nice atmosphere with restaurants and people walking their, their little kids around at 12 o'clock at night, you know, just completely different completely. to what we have here in Australia. Yeah. And uh, this we don't have in places like uh, Japan or Malaysia, where the track is smack bang next to the big international airport. So they lag a little bit of this atmosphere. Yeah. Final question, uh, statement, I guess. So you obviously understand what I'm trying to do with yes. Broco.life. And um, to guys out there who are at the bottom of the barrel, for someone who's been to 85 plus countries, lived an amazing life, what's... What's one piece of advice you could, you could give to a guy who's, say, you know, 30, 40, 50 at a crossroads? What's, okay. what's, what's one, one closing thought just for them to hang on to, um, you know, to, to sort of phrase a new life, so to speak? Look, like, I have to say one sentence before I even get to that. Mm -hmm. Because you make sound my life very glamorous, and it is not. <laughs> it has had its glamorous moments, of yeah. course, and it was always a pleasure to travel and see all these places. But a lot of that was simply hard work and simply too many aeroplanes and too many uh, 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 yeah, simple hotels, whatever. Yeah. Um, and I have been, for private or professional reasons, in dark spaces and in, in dark tunnels, not any less than everybody else. Yeah. And, my, and I know how difficult it is once, once you are down there. My advice would be, Never to forget, because this is a simple experience in life, that there is always light at the other end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. And alongside with that experience that there is always uh, light at the other end of the tunnel is you get to that other end of the tunnel and to that light sooner if you are willing to actually go towards that light. If you are willing to leave your comfort zone, as we said before, if you are willing to master that interest and curiosity, what is around the next corner? If you if you keep that in mind, say, look, even if it's hard, I have been invited to somewhere. I am going to go. There is this and this event in town. I am going to go. No matter what, I just push myself. I think that's the only advice I can give. Okay. Friedemann, thank you so much for your time. Fascinating story. It was an absolute pleasure. I, I hope I could contribute a little bit. No, you've, it's, it's, as I mean, I know, I know, you know, I started off with this by you saying not exceptional, but just to me, anyone who's followed a passion, carved the way and not done the norm of, you know, becoming a professional, I was meant to be an accountant, but it, <laughs> to, to me, that is exceptional. And I, and I, I, I uh, 
I wish that you could see that as well. And I know it's hard, but it's 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 always fascinating to speak to someone who's. Oh, look, likewise, and this I think that makes us friends. <laughs> I think it's thank, good. You so, thank you so much for the opportunity. Sure. It could be time for a beer, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> Cheers, man. Cheers.